you, you can holler, you can applaud, you can scream, you can do anything you want. I can't hear you anyway. <laughs> Welcome to Salt Lake Dirt. I'm your host, Kyler Bingham. Today on the show, I welcome back author Chip Jacobs. Chip has become a friend to the show. Uh, I had him on a couple of times already. Initially, we talked about his book, his novel, Arroyo, and then uh, kind of a true crime nonfiction book, The Darkest Glare. Both these books are on Rare Bird Books, by the way, um, which has become one of my favorite presses out there. Uh, so I was kind of digging back and reading some of his previous work and strange as it seems just felt like a, a book that I wanted to talk to him about came out in 2016 and it's a story about his uncle Gordon who um, kind of a depression era kid was involved in an accident at school uh, ended up being a quadriplegic and it tells his life story uh, about his involvement in the film industry working on music and, and such. So we get into it in the conversation. I'll leave it for that, but I'll make sure to have links to the books, uh, to all of the books that we've talked about. I think it, he's just an incredible writer and journalist, and amazing stuff. So uh, yeah, without further ado, let's go ahead and talk to Chip Jacobs on the Salt Lake Dirt podcast. Thanks for listening. <laughs> Chip Jacobs was uh, awesome enough to come back on the show. Uh, there was a, a book he put out a few years ago that I just, I have to talk about it. Uh, it's called Strange As It Seems, The Impossible Life of Gordon Z Zoller. And um, this book blew me away. You told me I needed to read it. And <laughs> absolutely, you were right. I've never heard. I mean, I don't even know where to start with with Gordon. Um, he's, he's family. He's your uncle. So, um, this book, this version of the book came out in 2016 on Rare Bird. Correct. And um, it sounds like you had, it, it existed in other incarnations before that. So, it, it was like a long process, this yeah, it, uh, putting good, it together. It's, it's a good story. It's a good story of tragic comedy and, you know, finding out who you are, me, where I came from, why I. And so I'm happy to talk, talk about all that. Yeah. So, um, yeah, fire away, but, um, yeah, it's, I think it's, 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 I think other writers will relate to my journey. Yeah. So let, I guess we could just start like who, who was Gordon? Why, uh, he, he was family. You remembered him as a child. Um, it talks about that in the book, but, oh my gosh, like the amount of stuff, like he, like it says a few times in the book, it was like, he, it was like he was Forrest Gump in that he was all around, he was everywhere uh, through historical yeah. moments. And he uh, had quite an unbelievable, uh, you know, relatively short life, but it was, it was, it was unreal. The amount of things that, you know, the adversities that he faced and what he was able to accomplish. So I guess, um, Cliff notes without any spoilers. I would love you to tell us about Gordon. Um, the story really begins. I mean, in my mind, um, when I'm a little kid, <laughs> my mom um, would talk up her famous brother, and um, what she thought was 
sensation I thought was scary because my uncle was a quadriplegic with some use of his arms. And um, I only remember him towards the end of his life. You know, he he broke his neck at 14 years old, about the same age I was when he died. And he wasn't expected to live two weeks and he lived 35 years. And I've been thinking, you know, he not 35 years, he was kind of half alive, half dead. But the half a life part, half a life part of him was more than enough. It was more than enough. And so um, I often was uncomfortable around him. And my mom sometimes would drop me off at his house in what's now West Hollywood when he'd have these entertainment filled parties with a lot of pretty well-known television folks. And I'm just this little kid with a bull haircut, you know, blubbering. I want to go home. <laughs> I don't know why my mom thought it was a good idea. But um, so, um, you know, when Gordon uh, was near death, my mom, I start the book this way. My mom insisted I say goodbye to him. And I, I, I was afraid of him. He he was gruff. My older brother had a much more buddy-buddy experience with, with him. To me, you know, um, he was like the first person I knew that I was about to die. And part of me was glad. I didn't realize what an incredible goat, greatest of all times, person, icon, hero, ceiling breaker. You know, uh, I, I didn't know any of that. I I just um, I just got nervous around him, especially seeing him in his hospital bed. The guy weighed at his best 98 pounds, and now he was shrunken over the time he died. Um, and, um, you know, um, my mom, for some reason, when I was a journalist and doing really well, thought I should write the story of him. It's like, I'm not going to write the story of somebody whose funeral I kind of celebrated inside because he was no longer going to be going to family dinners. And uh, lo and behold, my mom was right, you know, and I did take a leap of faith. Um, I left the LA Daily News right when I believe we were on a story. If we kept digging, that was going to win a Pulitzer because I just felt these ghosts of my past calling me. And uh, it's been a long time. But just to tell you about Gordon. So um, he broke his neck at 14. He was a daredevil of a place called Sierra Madre, which is a small hamlet to the um, east of Pasadena right in the foothills, kind of quiet, people call it kind of Mayberry under the wisteria trees. And um, it, uh, the accident devastated the family. Uh, my grandfather was a prolific Hollywood composer, put him on the hot seat to make more money. You know, they went broke. College dreams were shattered for my mom. And um, uh, Gordon, uh, in his mid-20s, sort of had to rebuild what was left of the family. And he did that using his father's music to, to sell his kind of back, background and soundtrack music to Hollywood when it, uh, after a, um, a musician strike when they needed money. And so he just found a way to keep he and his mom, because now his father had died from partly from the stress, had to stay off the streets. And it was a it was Horatio Alger meets, I don't know, Forrest Gump. You know, because then throughout my uncle's life, like, you know, he would always be in the right place at the wrong time. He was outside of Havana when Castro's troops started coming down on the mountains and taking over. He was in uh, Beirut, Lebanon at a dicey time. He, I mean, he um, went to the Vatican 
um, got blessed by the Pope, and then there he died. He um, got stranded in Munich during the 1972 Olympic terrorist incident. Things like that. Um, I knew nothing about that, you know, uh, when I was a little kid, you know, um, nervous about going to visit him. I didn't realize, you know, he was deeply involved in many of the shows I watched on TV, like General Ben and Flipper, the Pink Panther cartoons. I mean, it, it's it's a remarkable story of a complex person. I mean, my uncle, though, he was very fragile and seemingly could die at, you know, a mosquito bite. At one point, he had over 30 people working for him. He had the biggest post independent post-production shop in Hollywood. So, yeah, he was this, um, you know, person that uh, it, uh, retrained his mind to have kind of a photographic memory and this just this sense of enterprise and wonder. And, you know, there wasn't a lot you could do when you're uh, in a wheelchair all day except to think and, and improvise and come up with ideas. And he was just a fountain of them. All this was a surprise. I'm not sure my how much my mom even knew. Um, yeah, so he um, um, had a crazy life in Hollywood. He did very well. And then toward the end of the 60s, he started getting a little bored with Hollywood, a little jaded by Hollywood, and had this idea the to go to South Africa of all the places <laughs> and become the father of TV there. South Africa right then was in the teeth of apartheid. We're kind of before the world fully appreciated how terrible it was for the black majority there uh, controlled by the Afrikaners. I mean, it was like eight to one. Mm-hmm. Or, or um, But my uncle had the idea, if he'd go to South Africa, get away from Hollywood and everything that went with it, he could be a legend. He could get filthy rich and he could equalize the races because information is power and people in the third world were craving for TV, but dictatorships tended not to like it because it gave people ideas. It showed them how the rest of the world was working. And, and you know, it's kind of a bit of a great tragedy uh, for my for my uncle. You know, his one big dream fell short, but, you know, a lot of smaller dreams came true. Yeah, uh, unbelievable. I mean, one thing you say in the book is that um, how like a quadriplegic is forced to be hyper um, observant, yeah. something something to that degree. And and Gordon certainly was. Uh, I think I was just early in the book when he is trying to put this whole thing together. You know, it sounds crazy. He's piecing. He wants to. Catalog, um, catalog, catalog. Lee's, yeah. uh, your grandfather's, all of his, all of his music, which was no easy feat. But he got his buddies to help him <laughs> to get that, yes. to get that started. Uh, it sounds like they were they were coming over on weekends, and this is when they were in their early twenties, right? True. You know, my uncle got um, he broke his neck in November 1940. So a year later, a little bit, thirteen months later, Pearl Harbor happened and he had to be in bed in Sierra Madre fighting for his life while his buddies were either drafted or enlisted and my uncle wanted I later found out he wanted to be like a uh, um be a fighter pilot you know that would that would have fit his personality very smart quick learner daring probably too daring <laughs> and so he was stuck in Sierra Madre with basically just the girls from high school that didn't get drafted and older folks that were eligible to go fight. 
and, you know, champing at the bit to do something. And um, ironically, he later um, was asked to do a military training fil- film for the Air Force, uh, uh, which um, uh, came out very well. And then he was asked to uh, do a pep talk at the VA because the man in charge was so impressed by him. Yeah. And he met people that were very um, cynical and fatalistic and kind of heckled him. And he, he realized he was different than other people disabled, quote unquote. And in fact, he didn't want to even be around other disabled people because he didn't think of himself that way. But yeah, he, um, you know, that, that war really got to him because he felt like he had sidelined himself with a reckless stunt. And he had. Yeah, it sounds like even so. He was he's fourteen when this when the accident happened, and right. relatively quickly, it seems like once he kind of like realized this was his life, he learned how to work around it. He like he didn't really complain. He just seemed like okay. Well, this is these are obstacles in my way. What am I going to do to you know who am I going to get to help exactly or, or to tell what to do to, to get my goals done right and to answer your question which I you know he buddies that came back from the war and others did give up their weekend weekends I mean not just like a handful of weekends you know maybe for a whole year you know taking these old optical tapes with my grandfather's music on it uh, cataloging it, transferring it to new media, going and talking to the studios. I mean, they were packed into a small apartment and, and before that, a small house. Because after my uncle's accident, everything, the finances collapsed and they had to keep moving to smaller and smaller places. My grandfather died. Now they're living off um, kind of welfare, both from the county and through the Motion Picture Fund, which is a private organization. And, it, it, you know, the old thing, it takes a village to succeed. Well, it took a village to get my uncle out of Sierra Madre and into Hollywood. I mean, it was really what love, you know, and devotion. And there's some, I have some crazy photos of my uncle sort of around this time. You know, there'd be parties around his bed that my grandparents allowed with boozing and drinking and you know, couples making out and cigarettes behind ears and some of them in their military stuff. Um, you know, um, a lot of times when people get injured, there's an outpouring of compassion and, and sorrow and support, but that fades away. Well, that didn't fade away around Gordon. And I don't know why he had a very electric personality. Um, and uh, he was sincere. And so it's just remarkable. These people, you know, that it had their own lives sacrificed so much to help him. And, uh, you know, he must have done something right in a previous life. So it really, it, it kind of uh, blows your mind. And um, I know that after he made it, he'd sometimes come rolling back into Sierra Madre to see his friends. And once my uncle had a little money, even though sometimes he uh, didn't have as much as maybe he said, he, he, want, he got a new Cadillac every year. Even like I said, even though sometimes he couldn't afford and he would drive back through town with the top down or he would drive, you know, his driver would seeing his old friends like, hey, I made it. Can I can I do something nice for you? Get you a a seat to a premiere or come visit a a studio or something because I owe you guys. So the people of Sierra Madre, you know, were the ones that in a way gave my my uncle a chance to be great. And, you know, he owed everything to them. Yeah, I found it so interesting that like like of course Gordon is like the is fascinating, but so many different people 
in the book that you talk about, um, even some of the people like the your other your other relatives, just if you touch on it just a little bit, just fascinating yeah. people, fascinating stories. Um, I think maybe you could tell us about, so you just touched on like his driver. So Jimmy, yes. you tell us about Jimmy and who, who was Jimmy and kind of their relate yeah. working relationship. And it's, it went on for a long time. Um, yes. Um, I knew Jimmy because he, um, would carry Gordon, you know, um, out of the, out of the Cadillac when they'd come to our house for Christmas dinner, let's say. And some, I think he must have rung the doorbell with his nose because he was carrying my uncle like a bride because <laughs> the wheelchair would have trouble going over the stone entryway and then the threshold of the door. And Jimmy was just this sweet, quiet, really handsome guy. He probably, he kind of he had a little bit of a resemblance to Sidney Poitier. Um, I can't, uh, I'm mispronouncing it, but um, he, um, um, he was a, poor farmer son from the outside Shreveport, Louisiana. Um, as I learned, there was a sort of a Louisiana pipeline to California because it was Jim Crow there in the 40s and 50s, 60s. A lot of African-Americans wanted to get out and come to a land of opportunity. And LA was kind of advertised as that place. There's lots of factories for people to come to, lots of new ways to build a new life. And so Jimmy came out here after a stint in the Marines uh, that didn't go as planned. And um, he was one of these guys that found, you know what, it's kind of a dead end land. He got a job working for Greyhound bus changing tires. He worked on a city trash rig. In fact, one of the one of his customers was Jerry Lewis. And my uncle later became friends with Jerry Lewis. And when Jimmy worked for my uncle, and Jerry Lewis would come around, Jimmy would be embarrassed and Jerry Lewis would recognize him as a trash man. <laughs> anyway, my um, uh, Jimmy needed a job and Gordon needed an attendant. My grandmother couldn't do it. My grandmother was, uh, I mean, an amazingly selfless person, had a very tragedy, tragedy stricken life. And she was just burning out. I mean, she was on my uncle's side for 14 years, almost without a vacation or break. So Jimmy, you know, for very little pay, agreed to be, you know, my uncle's not only my uncle's driver, but his attendant, his everything man, who'd carry him in and out of the car, help him, you know, um, with his plumbing, quote unquote. Mm -hmm. Because, my, you know, when you're uh, paralyzed, your stomach muscles don't work the same. And Jimmy sometimes literally had to press on my mm -hmm. uncle's stomach to help him poop. Mm -hmm. It's like that. Light a cigarette, open this door, um, pull down a... Um, uh, pull down a, a um, music tape, you know, to sample, to sell to, uh, to sample for a potential customer, that type of thing. And, um, you know, Jimmy had, his eyes are wide open, all of it, you know, he's going from being a, a kid in, in Shreveport to rolling onto the Desilu lot, you know, where of all people, Lucille Ball really liked my uncle, you know, and maybe because he was different like her or, you know, he didn't complain. And so, my, you know, this guy, this poor farm kid is meeting Lucille Ball and, and then a whole bunch of others. Um, and it wasn't always easy. It was a long, hard, arduous job. But um, as I learned, there was kind of two Jimmies. There was the Jimmy that was resourceful um, and, um, and devoted to my uncle. And it wasn't like, you know, 
it, it wasn't like a, a white dude owning a black guy's time. They really did become friends mm-hmm. really quickly. And maybe because they both had some experiences of getting stared at a lot. And a lot of people didn't believe in them. Jimmy was unbelievably mechanically inclined. In fact, he became one of the first black editors when he left my uncle's employ for a time because of my uncle wouldn't pay him what he thought he should. Um, but Jimmy, um, you know, Jimmy lived one life with my uncle. Uh, and then at night he would go crush it at the nightclubs in South Central. And um he he was married when he first came to LA and then he brought his family out there. Well, that ended in, in divorce. And Jimmy uh was a real ladies' man. And he would go on to have more than 20, 25 children. Oh my gosh. <laughs> yeah. He actually ran away with my parents' housekeeper. And uh, well, she she quit the job to be with him, I should say. And I don't think Jimmy knew what he was getting into with the particular woman who probably had some mental problems because she um, when she found out about Jimmy and his other relationships and children, um, she threatened to take all his stuff and burn it in a bonfire. And anyway, yeah. So Jimmy had some domestic struggles himself. When my uncle wanted was getting involved in South Africa, Jimmy really wanted to go because Jimmy had traveled all over the world with my uncle, pushing him around from Venice, Italy to Tokyo to you know God knows where. Uh, it's not was not a very safe place for a, an American African American to go to South Africa. Can you imagine getting arrested, stared down? I mean, it already been bad enough when my uncle went with Jimmy to Europe. Some places wouldn't let a black American stay in the hotel. So there was racism there. So Jimmy got very upset that he couldn't go to see this exotic, you know, continent. Um, so they had a really incredible life together. Um, and, you know, I don't think my my uncle would have been anywhere successful without Jimmy around there. And Jimmy sort of learned to anticipate Gordon's mind, almost like their two minds fused. Mm-hmm. Everybody loved Jimmy, you know, and um uh, I was really honored. He let me interview him, talk to him. I went down to visit him several times in Louisiana. And um, the, the, um, when I was starting to work on this book, um, between the time that I arranged to go interview him and the time I actually arrived at his quote-unquote estate that my mom said was some big palace, it turned out to be a mobile home up on cinder blocks, Jimmy had had a stroke. Mm-hmm. And so I'm going around this vacant property where there's massive sized hogs, you know, and other weird animals. And Jimmy is not around. And it's like the jerk stood me up. Then his cousin happened to be across the road and says, no, go down to this hospital. That's there. Jimmy was, um, Jimmy was this little shrunken figure in a, in a darkened room. And he, he called his stroke a little decline. That's what, that's what he called it. And he insisted I crack open my laptop and stop, start asking him questions. And though it, it, he didn't give me very much because he was still kind of struggling to speak, you could see the heart was there. And I eventually did go back when he'd recovered. And God bless him, you know. I, I have pictures of us together. And I wish we had pictures of us, you know, as me as a little kid coming up to him. Because yeah. he's shadow box with you. That was his thing. So anyway, yeah, I love Jimmy and, you know, he's gone, he's gone up to heaven himself, but, um, you know, my uncle owed everything to that guy. Yeah. I mean, just a fascinating, um, person. And then I think it was, if I'm remembering correctly, that 
that trip you went to go see him for the first time um, to do research, um, you were sitting in your car and kind of like overwhelmed with the project and like, did I make a mis? Did I make a mistake because you'd you'd quit your your full time, you know, as secure as the job can be? Yeah, yeah. So I would love to talk about that. Um, you were you were employed full time, and you decided to pursue this this book. Um, that yep. takes a lot of courage <laughs> to do something courage. like that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, you know, uh, it, courage or or vanity or stupidity or you know, <laughs> you know, it's funny. You know, if you, I was just thinking before I came on. You know, if you live by your gut, you know, you are begging for belly aches sometimes. <laughs> yeah. And I had a great job at the LA Daily News as an investigative reporter. We were doing really good work writing about the pollution left over by a major defense contractor and the cancer it caused. And it, um, it, there's definitely kind of an Aaron Brockovich kind of element to that. And um, I uh, was getting interviewed by the LA times. You know, I, I came close to getting a job with them in a very short span, but my mom was just on me saying, you know, you should really think about this. You, you know, his, uh, she knew that many of my, of her uncle, of her brother's, Associates were getting older. Some had died. She'd read about some in the newspaper and you had a window, you know, I mean, if I didn't interview these people now and really throw myself into it, so much of my, so much of any book is, is just going to rely on newspaper clippings and foggy memories. I needed inside the family. I needed to get out there. And so, yeah, I mean, I quit and my, I so never, what, what year was this roughly? This was late 1996. And my editor was really angry at me. And so was a famous daily news columnist named Rick Orloff, who tried to who who helped get me hired. I was working at a bureau for the LA Times when they when the Daily News hired me. And uh they were really upset with me. And my editor, Ron Kay, said, I think you're making a big mistake, kid. We have a lot more to teach you. And those words kept ringing through my ears. Sometimes they still do. Like, what am I <laughs> doing chasing the ghost? of a guy whose casket I was glad to see go on the ground. What, what was I thinking? You know? And I, I, I did believe I could get back into journalism if I just realized, Oh no, this thing is going nowhere. Um, and yeah, there's a lot of self-questioning, a lot of doubt. Um, you know, I wrote the book um, and then I thought I had a deal in place. Got, I, I always felt like I was so lucky in journalism. Well, I didn't, I don't always feel that way as an author. Mm -hmm. When I was a journalist, stuff always fell into my lap. I thought maybe that was going to continue with this despite some early struggles. I, I thought I had a deal in place with a major publishing company called St. Martin's back in New York. The L.A. editor out here loved the book. Mm -hmm. And um, then she got fired and the 9-11 happened and nobody would care. And the whole memoir biography of underdog people, that 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 whole um, wagon train uh, lost its wheels. And so, yeah, you know, the book did come out in different iterations and uh, I was never happy with it until 2016. And I learned more. I also learned how to be a better nonfiction storyteller. And, um, you know, I've had many conversations with my uncle, up, you know, where he's residing now asking, why are you leading me on this 
half. What about, did you really, are you so upset with me? Don't break something when I was seven years old in your house. Yeah. Um, so, you know, it's, it, um, it, it's been very fulfilling. I'm glad I did it, but you know, I'll tell you, Connor, it was, I mean, I, I thought that I had just taken a very promising career and drove it straight into a mountain named Gordon, you know, <laughs> And, and not that I wasn't coming to embrace him and realize this is an incredible story. I've often had trouble getting people to believe this really happened. Mm-hmm. You know, that he really lived this way, just like I did with the true crime book. No, this really happened. You know, real life is better than fiction. And, um, you know, it wasn't always easy doing this book. My mom got upset when I started digging deeper into the family past. And I'll just tell you quickly um, my grandmother did everything for Gordon to live. Her one wish was that Gordon outlived her. Like all parents want their children to outlive her. Uh, my grandmother's, um, her father was murdered in El Paso, Texas. Almost a gen- exactly a generation later on the same, in the same month, almost on the same day of the year, one of his sons, a very well-known former movie producer, director named Matt Ross, he was murdered. In fact, he was murdered while my grandmother sat at County General Hospital holding Gordon's numb hand, hoping he was going to live. And this was Sonny? Is this? Yes, Nat Ross. Yeah, Sonny Nat Ross. He was um, uh, one of the early people uh, that developed Universal Pictures with Carl Carl, uh, Lamley. Um, Irving Thalberg, another very famous figure of early Hollywood, was his roommate. Mm -hmm. And my grandmother was a religious Christian, a religious Christian woman, and she believed in prayer circles and, you know, uh, reading the Bible and asking God to, you know, at first let Gordon walk and then just asking God to let Gordon live. And she, I think she developed this mindset that Gordon had to succeed, not because of his injury, but because of it, because every promising male in the family um, either came to America, you know, as a genius, like um, in the case of my grandfather's uh, dad, uh, and, you know, medical doctor had to work as a dress cutter. You know, her father uh, rebuilt his life after the San Francisco earthquake. He gets killed. My, you know, her kid brother, Sonny Nat Ross, gets murdered by a psychotic drifter, you know, and then now she's looking at a son. You know, who will be lucky to live a couple of years. And and she saw what Gordon's effect was on people, you know, very positive effect. Gordon never talked about his injury when people, you know, would be horrified at his hands or how shriveled he looked. He, he just would charm his way out of it. And often he'd just say, you know, people, you know, don't shake my hand. Just give me a kiss on the forehead and think and remember how lucky you are. You could be me. You know, he did. He was very endearing and self-deprecating. And there was a magic about him. And so my grandmother, I think she appreciated his place in the continuum of tragic men and that he would rise above it. Does that make sense? Yeah, for sure. No, that makes that makes a lot of sense, especially, um, you know, you build you you give us all that information uh, in the book about, um, you know, the tragic demise. And so just just kind of a slightly kind of related. So I think with uh, Nat Ross, he, so he was kind of a protege of Carl Lemley. Yep. And um, is he in he's in the mausoleum with with Lemley? Is that did I catch that right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's, so I've I, been there. <laughs> yeah, been I, have, I have to get out there. I'm not 
I don't believe in death. I believe we all live on in a system too big for our little human brains to understand. But I have to go out there and visit that because supposedly he is buried in Carl Lemley's private yeah. Grave area. And there is some belief, and I have not tracked this down on ancestry, that actually uh, we are related to the, the Lem- Lemley, fa- Lemley family. And I should really get a discount because, um, <laughs> you know, in books, he calls him, you know, in books, he's referred to as Carl Lemley's nephew. What's confusing is that many people call Carl Lemley Uncle Carl uh-huh. because of his personality. So I'm not, I, I'm not sure how that works out, but yeah, it was um, Carl Le- uh, Lemley had kind of a tragic life after he lost control of Universal Pictures, but um, you know we had a very Hollywood-oriented family. You know, in fact, that, my mom once told me that as a little boy, probably before I, I was ready to hear. It, she goes, "Yeah, there's been murder in the family, and there's also been ghosts in the family, and there's also Hollywood in the family, and that's a lot for a little kid to take in." <laughs> that's fascinating. Yeah, it's, that's a it's, lot. <laughs> it's, it turned out to be really true, and yeah, um, yeah you know. Um, Nat Ross was like a wonder kind who got his first job in the burgeoning movie business, like at 14 or 15. And he was my uncle's favorite uncle. And I I wondered how my grandmother even told Gordon, you know, Mm -hmm. yeah, you know, well, things aren't so looking so good for you and things are looking even bleaker for your uncle because he just got killed. Mm -hmm. And it was a very big splashy case. Um, I, you know, I don't think I could have written this book unless I'd been a reporter because it took a lot of tracking down, yeah. but I pulled the whole court file of my uncle, of my great uncle, Nat, and fell in love with him. And it, it's stunning. And, you know, you can see pictures of detectives around the chalk line of where his body was. And they look like they walked out of a Raymond Chandler book. Wow. I swear to you. Yeah. You know, and, um, you know, I mean, it's, I mean, it, my mind is just popping in a million different ways as I'm learning about this. And I had to actually is develop the story better, not not digress too much in these other really interesting mm-hmm. stories. Because it is about where, where Gordon fit in. Yeah. No, it's it seemed like it it was like there was so much there, but it, you are led along with Gordon. So it's like, but I was just blown away by these like little side nuggets of of just wild Hollywood craziness and it was like oh my gosh and just how it all kind of collided there i mean and i was super impressed just with what you just mentioned the like the the amount of research that i can't even imagine went behind something like this so you know you have you have gordon's family but that could pose its own challenges right there that he is family um in in some respects yes and my mom my mom wanted more of a hallmark channel valentine (laughs) yeah yeah. You know, and I didn't want to write that type of book. You know, I remember when I brought my mom my first investigative journalism story. Go look, mom. You know, I, you know, had an expose about some Metro Rail contractor. My mom goes, "That's great, but can't you write something nice?" <laughs> um, she got really angry, to use a euphemism, when I brought back all this uh, data through the Texas Texas Library, saying I found out about the whole story of the murder of your grandfather. Mm-hmm. I don't want to see it. She wouldn't even open it up. In fact, she stopped speaking to me for a few months, more or less, because I was I was digging in places that she did not want. Did Did she feel like you were bringing shame, like upon the family name, doing that, or she was she? Yeah. Okay. 
shame. They, you know, that was a thing when, you know, in the forties and fifties, that generation, sure. you, know, you didn't talk about murder. You didn't talk about suicide. You didn't talk about cancer. Cancer was like almost something you brought under yourself. You know, that, that was, that was it. And so my mom's very crusty old, old viewpoint on the world, you know, came out and we were, we were definitely doing this knocking heads. And at one point I said, I don't, you know, she said, I'm not going to even let you interview me anymore. I was very reliant on my mom to give yeah. me, what do you know? And I went up and talked to her, um, to talk to actually Nat Ross's brother who was still alive. And he told me a lot. And I came back with uh, more questions than my mom wanted to answer. So it, it caused some problems. You know, um, that's the whole side story of Gordon's. My mom died in 2008 and she died of lung cancer. You know, I, I say, you know, her her favorite men in the world were her sons and then a guy named Benson and Hedges. <laughs> and, um, you know, she was on oxygen. Pretty bad way to go out. And one of the last times I saw her open her eyes, I was showing her a copy of the first version of this book. Oh, and she wow. gave me a beautiful smile. My mom was a really beautiful woman, former beauty queen. And, you know, I felt like I had, I felt like I had, you know, fulfilled a purpose. You know, sometimes I've won, you know, my, my parents were both in their mid forties and they had me very late. Wow. You know, I, yeah. they weren't actually even supposed to have another child because I did have a mentally retarded brother, you know, above me. And I was a whoops child, you know, born in mid October. And, you know, when you do, you, you go backwards nine and a half months, I realized I'm probably a New Year's Eve baby, New Year's <laughs> Eve whoops baby. And I, I do firmly believe part of the reason I was born was to tell this story. Yeah. You know, it was to tell the story of my uncle, you know, and I'm so glad I did. And I, I don't think people have seen a character like him. No. You know, no. <laughs> and, 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 you know, one of the funny things about my uncle, he liked, he, he was a daredevil. I think he got a kick out of putting gullible people in really dangerous situations. He was accustomed to it. And so at one point when he's, he's made it, he's now found a wife. He decides right, yeah. he wants to travel across part of the Alps into Italy. Uh-huh. You know, a really scary hairpin hair drive. One mistake, you're over the edge. And Jimmy's and driving this, right? Jimmy's <laughs> driving an Opal, a rented Opal. My his wife Judy, my you know uh, aunt by by marriage, is flipping out, and um, you know, steamed at him. And he, he's like, "What's wrong? Wasn't that a beautiful view? Wasn't that a, wasn't that an insane drive? Aren't you glad you'd be able to remember that the rest of your life?" And it's like, "No, no, no. We're never we're never getting in a car with you again. Letting you do it." <laughs> the same thing would happen when he'd go. He, I mean, imagine a a guy in a wheelchair, helpless, demanding to go on a safari when you know there's a jaguar out there, a really aggressive jaguar. That's the type of things he'd do. I mean, he'd my uncle for a while was living that Hollywood life on Blue Jay Way, the street made famous by the Beatles song. And he had a pool. I mean, he would like to be out in the pool by himself on a raft, just floating around. Maybe it gave him the sense of sensation of movement. But all it took would take is one little spasm. And he's drowned. Yeah. But, you know, I think he would have been okay with that. I mean, I, I, I don't live that fearlessly and there, but I sure like to, I sure hope someday I can. You know? uh, yeah. I, I mean, I, no, thanks for me. I don't, I don't want to live that <laughs> dangerously. <laughs> I got it. So I feel like 
I, I really want people to to read this book, and we'll have links to where you can pick up a copy. But I feel like we're we're just scratching the surface, really, and because it, it is a it is a remarkable story. Um, I can't help but think this would make a perfect uh, like film project, like a series. I mean, no. there is just so much there, and um, have you have you considered that? Yes, yes, I've considered that, and um, you know, I. <sighs> I don't know. I, I think I would become a human rocket if, if that ever happened, because I just I just know there's something about Gordon and his personality and, you know, how the family made it possible for him to live his best life, despite a lot of exact, you know, exacted flesh uh, that people could r- relate to, especially now. You know, he was the ultimate bootstrapper. He um you know, got himself in these situations that you do see in TV series and in movies. But sometimes when you look deeper, you go, that's, it feels like some screenwriter's idea. What if we put him in this situation? My my uncle actually did it himself. <laughs> you know, what, one funny thing, like with, uh, what I mean, there's, it's so filled with so much humor. You know, my uncle's really first entree into film was with Ed Wood. Right. I'm that's what. From outer space. You know, um, he, uh, when I saw his resume, it's interesting. There's no reference to Ed Wood. Not, <laughs> I but, don't blame him. <laughs> you know, his, I mean, think about it. He goes from Ed Wood, who is still very charming and lovable in his own I love way. Ed Wood, yeah. <laughs> um, and then his next big, big movie that really helped legitimize him was on a Doris Day movie. Uh-huh. You know what's called Doris Day? America's wow. Virgin. <laughs> he was so wholesome and pure and um, just kind of had like light coming out of her skin and they needed some inexpensive soundtrack material. So my uncle, you know, went from um, vampires and zombies from space <laughs> to a movie about uh, a couple having trouble conceiving, you know, I mean, can you believe that that short arc? So um yeah, I, I do think it would make a really excellent uh, film series, and you know, I'm I'm hopeful it will happen. You know, and um, I've you know, over the years I have talked to people, but it just never was quite right. You know, I want whoever does it to to kind of think how you know what would Gordon do? What would you know? And and not take itself too seriously, but also not be frivolous, mm-hmm. you know, because um, you know, there's some really hard moments in this in this book. The injury, oh, yeah. the pain. Um, my when my uncle met uh, the woman that'd be his wife, he um, felt like he had to make up for a lot of lost time. After all, his friends are getting married. Most he could charm most women, but he could never charm most women into a date with a man to whom they could see no future. Right? Yeah. Um, and but when my my uncle did find this beautiful willowy blonde named Judy, one of the sweetest people you'd ever meet. They came back from the honeymoon and my uh, uncle told my mom she has to go find her own place to live. And it was very kind of, you know, brutal, you know, you can understand it, but it was brutal in its in the way it went down. And my grandmother was furious and got a lawyer, accused her son of fraud, even though he wasn't trying to do that over some business dealings. But, you know, that's kind of Shakespearean, you know. I kept you alive and now you're, you're giving me a pink slip. But for me, it was actually a blessing. I knew nothing about this. I'm a little kid. He said, my mother, my grandmother, 
I called her Mama Rose. She returned to Sierra Madre. I got a grandmother very close to me who always said yes to everything. <laughs> Popcorn, bubble gum, take me to the park. Uh, one thing one thing I do remember, Kyler, is she had a day bed in this one bedroom apartment. And you could bounce, I could bounce on trampolines, <laughs> like all little kids, right? Sure. And I remember jumping on this, jumping on this bed and the look of worry on her face. Because <laughs> I was trying to touch the ceiling. It was one of those, you know, kind of checkered tile ceilings. Look, look, Mama Rose, I can touch it. And it was like, no, can you not jump so high? I mean, can you know, she had a reason to be nervous right. after what happened yeah. with her son. Yeah. Well, and there's Oh my gosh. Yeah. They're, they're just, it's so rich, like for like a, a visual uh, project. I mean, just like what you said, it is Shakespearean. Uh-huh. I think there's a, a quote I wrote down when, when she passes away and he's, he had kind of, tre- you know, he was very cold at certain points and now he was feeling horrible. Like he says, I've been, re- I've been realizing that it's people who give each other diseases like, Oh, such a powerful line. And just, you know, yeah. he, it was, he was just torn up inside. He was torn up inside. Yeah. I, I, um, he, he was, I, I don't know if he ever got over that, but man, he, my grandmother succeeded, you know, maybe not exactly the way that she imagined, but he did outlive her, you know, he outlived her for 11 years. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, you know, my, my grandmother would always be calling the doctor saying, how long can he live? And event, the doctors first said, well, I don't know. And then, it, then it became, pretty long we never had anybody live this long with this level of injury he had a spinal injury up on his cervical third and fourth vertebrae and basically the higher up you go on your neck uh the more loss of control you have below it mm-hmm. and um uh i i tried to find but could never locate the medical journals supposedly had a story about gordon talking about uh, there being no scientific foundation for why he's alive <laughs> wow i mean that would have been a fine but i you know you have to really dig deep and do the usc medical school library to get something like that well yeah uh, just like with all the like the infection that wasn't able to like early on that wasn't able to be treated like it is today i mean they didn't have antibiotics back sure then. yeah think about that and when you're when you're paralyzed you are sitting duck for infections he did have his spine later fused mm-hmm and really interestingly, you know, people that have their spine fused are given a choice. Would you prefer to have your spine fused for more of a horizontal position or one for more being sitting up? He chose sitting up. Yeah. And so his body is kind of, you know, his, you know, spine is kind of like this. And um, which meant that he always would never be that comfortable, you know, and had to have an articulating bed, but that's the way he wanted to greet the world. There was no way my uncle would ever lie flat. Really? Mm-hmm. You know, he, I mean, these are the types of things that he wanted to do. He wanted to take flying lessons. He had this idea because maybe it was in the news. If you had your hands amputated, you could have hooks put on there. And because he had some use of shoulder muscles, those nerves were not damaged. He could hold a cigarette maybe even partly control a plane, you know, uh, not steering wheel, but, you know, I guess a steering wheel, um, um, you know, maybe he could fish, he could cigar- use a cigarette. And then, you know, I think the idea is, oh my God, what happens if you knock this hook over and you took somebody's eye out, mm-hmm. you know, but he, he did want to do that. You know, wow. he, 
He took experimental drugs to have sex. Uh, he, he tried to maximize every bit of the living element of him, you know, and he, you know, I mean, I'm sure he would have done it if, <laughs> if he had a little more confidence, you know, it wasn't going to blow up in his face because things did blow up in my face. My uncle never, never asked for sorrow or pity. But subconsciously, sometimes he overcompensated for his disability by talking too much. He'd been a negotiator with this guy named Don Kirshner, who was a very big media person. Uh, you, I don't know if you, you're probably too young for Don Kirshner's Rock Show, which was a cheesy late 70s, you know, music showcase. Uh, he wanted to create a stage show with him. But my uncle didn't know when to shut up sometimes. And he said like one or two sentences too many. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there would be a no. He got a lot of yeses. But, um, in the you know, your mind can't escape what, they, what it knows, which is you better be impressive because people are going to wonder, do you have the, you know, do you have it? Do you have the stuff inside of you to execute on your idea? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Like what a story. I mean, I, I want people where, where do you, um, I mean, they can get it anywhere. They can get it on Amazon. They get up Barnes and Noble. Where, where would you recommend any specific, I forget the local store down in Pasadena that you, 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 Romans. Yeah. yeah. I hear Jeff Bezos stock has declined. So maybe (laughs) Amazon because, you know, we want to make sure he's okay. Sure. Amazon, (laughs) Barnes and Noble, you know, um, if you're interested, go to my website, um, I have to clean up a few links on it, but I have a pretty robust section about Gordon. Um, you know, I talked about South Africa. You can see his plans for South Africa there. The, you know, he had a rendering done. This Universal Studios-like um, campus he was going to build in Johannesburg, which is the cultural center of South Africa. There's there's stories about his injury. Um, one of the cool, one of the interesting things I found is two two headlines that tell it all. I found the headline that said, um, 14-year-old boy critically injured in gymnastics fall, right? And then approximately 16 years later, a story that went around the world on the wire services that said, 28-year-old uh, crippled genius sells TV show. <laughs> <laughs> oh, unreal, unreal. Yeah, they, yeah. Called him a, they called him a genius. And I, and I bet you, knowing my uncle, being the smart ass that he was, I got. Part, I'm sure he did not let his friends forget. Genius. <laughs> they called me that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's wonderful. Yeah, I love the book. I mean, like I said, we didn't scratch the surface. Uh, so, you know, I encourage everyone to pick up a copy because it's, um, yeah, it's. I mean, we didn't get to like the architecture of of the home up on a Blue Jay Way, but yeah, get the yeah. book, everybody. It's 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 unreal. Yeah. Well, thank you. I, I really appreciate you having me on. You, you're a friend of writers and, um, you know, you, you can rock that headgear like nobody else. <laughs> well, thanks, Chip. Yeah, this was great um, having you on again. I mean, you're always welcome to come back and uh, we look forward to hearing about future projects. And thanks so much. Thank you. It's been it's been a blast always. So, yeah. God bless, man. 